What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. Welcome back to episode 42. I just want to apologize for being out last week with no announcement. Sometimes life happens and you just have to take a step back. So thank you all for being here with me again today. Before we get started, I have some housekeeping. So definitely make sure you're subscribing to the YouTube. Um, Leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, radio whatever fm or whatever it is um yeah go leave all those ratings also if you check the link in my bio on prosket podcast on instagram or twitter or anywhere where you see that link in bio you can also see the official profsketpodcast.com website as well as the merch site our patreon where you can subscribe to support the podcast and get bonus content which i have some bonus episodes in the works currently and I think that's everything. So with that, let's get into today's episode. Sorry, Ziggy's having a moment on the floor. Today we're talking about Charles Manson and the Manson family. You good, bud? Okay, I think he's good. Yeah, so this episode I'm really excited about. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while, and I've kind of been on that like summer of love hippie wave a little bit maybe not so much in these last couple of episodes but so far with the podcast I'm gonna let him settle down such a good boy okay maybe one day I'll do a Ziggy reveal on the YouTube so oh before I get started on this topic I when I went to Las Vegas in July of this year 2022 I went to the Zach Bagans Haunted Museum and they have like all of Charlie Manson's or Charles Manson, whatever. I think I'm going to call him Charles Manson because I don't want to call him Charlie. Um, But they have like all of his stuff. There's like his last prison uniform and letters that he wrote in prison and like all sorts of stuff. And it has this like horrible vibe to it. It's in a room with a bunch of other serial killers from like 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, So it's definitely worth checking out if you're ever in Vegas. It's a little expensive, but... It's like a four-hour fucking tour, so you're definitely getting your money's worth. And with that, let's get started. So who is Charles Manson? Charles Manson was born on November 12th, 1934, which makes him a Scorpio, which doesn't surprise me, even though I love my Scorpios. Um, oh god, I just got self-conscious that I have, like, talkies in my teeth. Right before I started recording, I was like, I need to go downstairs and get a snack first, and that was my choice. Okay, so Charles's mother, her name was Kathleen Maddox, and she had him when she was 15 years old. His biological father's name is Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr., or that's that's who they think the biological father is, and he worked intermittently at local mills, and he had a local reputation as being a con artist. So I think with his situation, Charles Manson's situation, we had a bit of that, like, nature versus nurture situation going on. He had both of that. Like, I think... 
you know, his father's a con man. Not that he was necessarily a con man, but bad seed kind of vibes coming from his dad. But basically, he allowed Charles's mother to believe that he was like in the army because his name was Colonel, but that was actually his birth name. His name was Colonel. Um, but she thought it was like a given title, I guess, from the army. And when she told him that she was pregnant, he was like, oh, I have army duties. I'll be back. And then he never returned and like never reached back out to talk to her. So in August of 1934, before Manson was born, she remarried, or I guess I don't even think she was married to this first man, but she married a man named William Eugene Manson. And that is where Charles Manson got his last name. Okay, so Charles's early childhood and young life was spent bouncing around from being taken care of by different relatives to a lot of time in reform schools and institutions. She was very young when she had him, so needed all the help. I think I actually read somewhere along the line that she ends up marrying another man that she had met in Alcoholics Anonymous, so she was in a program. So just a lot of turmoil in his early years. And now this next section, it's still like about him, but this is coming from his Wikipedia page, I believe. My main sources for this episode were the Smithsonian, Crime Museum, the Wikipedia pages for Charles Manson and the Manson family. And there's a couple more that I'll put in the show notes, but those are the main ones that I'm referencing today. I also watched the 60 Minutes, um, the Australia 60 Minutes on the Manson family. And I listened to the Manson Family, the Family Jams album, which is actually pretty good. I hate to admit it. Um, it just It's very much like reminiscent of that era. It just fits in with that kind of music. But let's get into his early childhood. So in an interview with Diane Sawyer, Manson said that when he was nine, he set his school on fire. So if you know anything, I think it's the McDonald triad or the Mix Something triad, but it's about... Um, signs in early childhood that indicate whether someone is going to grow up and essentially be a murderer. And that is one of them. So I think it's killing animals, setting things on fire, and uh, wetting the bed are like the three things that are supposedly indicators. And it's not just like one of these things. It's like you have to have all three. Um, but that's one of them. Okay, so he also got in trouble for truancy and petty theft, and in 1947, at 13 years old, Manson was placed in the Gibalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, Haute, Indiana, and it was a delinquent boys' school run by Catholic priests, so not to, like, be that person, but you, I'm sure you have an idea where this is going. So this was a strict school. Punishment for even small offenses included beatings with wooden spoons, um, leather straps, stuff like that. And he ended up running away from this school. He slept in the woods, under bridges, wherever he could find shelter. So he was later sent to another boys' reform school for petty theft. So he's just constantly doing things, getting sent in and out of schools, running away, committing crimes, getting sent back to schools. And at this next school, I don't think I wrote it down, um, he continued on. So he keeps doing petty theft. He ends up escalating to armed robbery and eventually grand theft auto and then he was sent to another boys reform school where now this might this episode is going to have trigger warning i'm just going to go ahead and say it um for the r word and i'm going to say the word so supposedly allegedly other boys at the school had raped manson with the encouragement of a staff member 
And he was repeatedly beaten. And I think the beatings were kind of commonplace for all of the boys at the school at the time. And there are also sources that claim that Manson himself raped a student while he was in a reform school. I don't really have like this perfectly substantiated, but regardless, if this is even something that's being rumored around someone's life, you can kind of get an idea that maybe their life wasn't going so great, (laughs) whether it's true or not. Like the fact that people are talking about that um, is just not good. So supposedly he ran away from school 18 times. And while at this school, Manson developed a self-defense tactic, which I also use, but I didn't know that, like, this wasn't something that I got from, like, the Mansons. But so he calls this technique the insane game, and I'm putting air quotes around that. So basically, when he was physically unable to defend himself, he would screech, grimace, and wave his arms to convince aggressors that he was insane. And that's a quote. After a number of failed attempts, Uh, I guess, of, like, trying to get away. He escaped with two other boys in 1951. So I'm going to backtrack a second. The insane insane game, I have always said, like, if anyone ever approaches me on the street or, like, tries to abduct me, I'm just going to, like, act like I'm possessed or something and, like, like, you know, the tables have turned sort of situation on them. Like, imagine you approach somebody and they just start, like, okay, I wish I didn't do that. Um, But... Like, I feel like that would work. Like, imagine you're trying to, like, abduct somebody and they just start, like, literally seizing and spazzing or, like, pretend you have a seizure or something. Like, I have always told people, I'm like, if something happens to you, try this. It's like when you see a bear and you, like, stand up tall. You just have to, like, uh, reverse the roles on them real quick. So, yes, 1951, Manson escapes with two other boys. And the three escapees were robbing filing stations while attempting filling stations, filing stations. It's two L's. Is that a gas station? I'm not sure. But anyways, they were attempting to drive to California. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know if I put where he was from. I was reading. Okay, so he was in like West Virginia. So this was like a a long drive. But anyway, so they stole these cars and they were arrested in Utah. And for this being a federal crime, um, stealing a car and driving across state lines, Manson was sent to Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys. And on arrival, he was given a bunch of tests. They were trying to determine, like, what is wrong with this dude? They did determine he was illiterate, but he had an above-average IQ of 109. I do not know what an average IQ is. I should probably know that. Um, But anyway, so he had an above-average one. And his caseworker deemed him aggressively antisocial. The psychiatrist that he was seeing recommended sending Manson to a minimum security institution And this is when it kind of transitioned from Manson going to these boys' schools to actual prison institutions, jails, where he spent a majority of his life. So he was born in 1934, I believe, and he was institutionalized until 1967. And this is when he started to kind of um, build his legacy. So while he was incarcerated, he began studying Scientology and then officially decided that that was his religion. So there's, I guess, prison records where he claimed or stated that. And a September 1961 prison report argues that Manson, quote, appears to have developed a certain amount of insight into his problems through his study of this discipline. And then when he was released in 67, Manson traveled to LA, where if you're not 
aware there's a lot of Scientologists that live in L.A., and he reportedly met local Scientologists and, quote, attended several parties for movie stars. A lot of celebrities are Scientologists or in the past were Scientologists. I don't want to, like, say they, you know, whatever. Um, but, yeah, if you go to L.A., you will see a ton of Scientologists. There's, like, Scientology buildings everywhere. And I am planning to do an episode on Scientology, but apparently Manson completed 150 hours of auditing, which is, like, I'm not, like, perfectly familiar with how it works, but it's a part of the process of, like, I guess going through, like, being a Scientologist. You have to be audited, and it's, like, looking at your life and all that kind of stuff. So he was definitely in it, which is interesting that he was in Scientology, or he was a Scientologist and then kind of took his own route. So Manson was considered so thoroughly institutionalized by authorities that when he was released in 67, he actually asked the warden to stay, supposedly. That's from the Smithsonian. After he left prison, like I said, he migrated to Berkeley and then San Francisco, and then he ultimately landed up in L.A. Um, but remember, this is 67. We're, getting, uh, we're in the Summer of Love era. He starts to develop a small group of followers um, which was almost entirely women. And then in 1968, that was when they made the big move to L.A. where he wanted to pursue a music career because when he was in prison, a bank robber by the name of Alvin Karpis had taught Manson to play the steel guitar. Now, I don't know what the difference between a regular guitar and a steel guitar is, but he knew how to play it, and he wanted that to be his big thing. And, like, honestly... Like, I kind of dig the music. Like, it's not really anything special, and it very much is, like, a sign of the times. Like, it just kind of sounds like that era of music. But it was good, and he had a bunch of women to sing with him. So, um, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Manson's Hollywood connections, which he did have some. Um, I'm not going to go too in-depth about it, but it's just kind of laying the foundation for, like, his Hollywood connections, his music career. And then I want to talk to you guys about the Manson family and who they were. <sighs> okay. So during this era, runaway hippies were commingling with Hollywood stars. Um, this is actually how Charles Manson became friends with Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer for the Beach Boys. Um, basically, like... They became friends because some of the girls that were following Manson, which is such a concept to me. Like, I feel like we kind of touched on this in our Summer of Love episodes. Um, and some of the cults that I've, like, researched and stuff. It's just, it was a time where people were willing to expand their consciousness, open their minds, and people were willing to take advantage of that. And it's just interesting. I feel like everybody had like their little guru or their shaman that they were following. And it was like, you just had to be like a white dude with like long hair and all the girls would be like, oh my God, it's like Jesus reincarnated. So like I said, just a bunch of beautiful middle-class women were like, let's follow this dude around. They actually met Dennis Wilson, some of the girls, and they introduced Charles Manson to him. And that was how they became friends. Stories very slightly on, like, how they met. Like, I saw one where it was, like, Dennis was hanging out with the girls at his house, and then the next morning when they woke up, like, Charlie or, ew, Charles was, like, standing in his driveway, and he was like, oh, like, these are my people. And then I saw, like, just slightly different variations of that. But anyways, they eventually all end up cohabitating, um, doing drugs together, having sex together, the whole shebang. 
So they move into Dennis Wilson's house. So I mentioned, you know, Charles is trying to really make it with his music career. So he's trying to push this onto Dennis, like, hey, like, you're in the Beach Boys. You can kind of help me out here. Wilson did actually convince the Beach Boys to rework and record one of Charles's songs. It was called, quote, Cease to Exist, which is just, eh. And then they renamed it to Never Learn Not to Love. But supposedly, according to the Smithsonian, it was considered a flop. Okay, so this next part is about... Um, it's from Wikipedia. It's about Charles, and it's kind of just like more of like a personality check about him, not necessarily. I mean, it has some Hollywood people, but I'm going to read this to you. So actor Al Lewis had Manson babysit his children on a couple of occasions, and he described him as, quote, a nice guy when I knew him. Music producer Phil Kaufman introduced Manson to Universal Studios producer Gary Stromberg, who was then at the time working on a film adaptation of Jesus set in modern America. It featured a black Jesus and southern, quote, redneck Romans. This is all a quote. I'm just reading this. I'm not saying this myself. Stromberg thought that Manson made interesting suggestions about what Jesus might do in a situation seeming to be attuned to the role. And he had one of his women kiss his feet and then kiss hers in return to demonstrate the place of women. So right off the bat, we have um religious connotations in this family which I haven't even introduced you to the family yet but that just kind of I guess gives you an idea of like how this commune this cult this gang this whatever you want to call it it's been called everything all of the above um that is how they acted they would kiss his feet one time this is so out of pocket one time I was hooking up with somebody and he was like kiss my feet and I was like no like what Anyways, so this is not necessarily a Hollywood thing, but it was from that same section in Wikipedia, and I wanted to share it. So Manson tried to manipulate Danny DiCarlo, who was the treasurer of the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club, by granting him, quote, access to family women. He convinced DiCarlo that his large penis helped keep the women in the group. And... This is just how he viewed these women. I also want to point out, I didn't write it in my notes, but I was reading about it. Supposedly, when they were all living with Dennis Wilson in his house, he was like putting up, he was paying for all of them to stay there. He was um, paying for them to live there, all the bills. He also paid for medical bills. I think it was like a ridiculously high number that he had to pay for like all the women had gonorrhea. Like they're all just fucking each other, not using protection. He's like, essentially being like, you can sleep with my women, like they're my women. So it's not good vibes. Okay. So I just wanted to throw that in there and like show you how he like views these women, which um, we'll get into like their ideologies here in a minute. It's just, it's contradictory because he's like, this is how he's like, you guys are my disciples and whatever, whatever. But then he treats them like they're cattle. Okay. So back to the Hollywood stuff. Manson became acquainted with record producer Terry Melcher, who was the son of actress Doris Day, and he was also dating model and actress Candace Bergen, or Bergen, I don't know. We will come back to this connection here in a little bit, but I just wanted to kind of drop that there for you, a little foreshadowing, if you will. So, in conclusion of the Hollywood section, through Dennis Wilson, Manson met many other music industry players and grew increasingly fixated on his stardom. This is from the Smithsonian. Um, 
Yeah, so basically he's like, his Manson family is growing, he's meeting other people in the music industry, and he's feeling very, very powerful. Okay, who is the Manson family? Also, sorry if that was a little confusing. I, like, struggled with how I wanted to write these notes. I was like, do I lay down his, like, music stuff first, or do I lay down who the Manson family is first? And I just felt like this made the most sense, so thanks for following along. All right, so this is from Wikipedia. Manson established himself as a guru. Like I mentioned, lots of men were just doing this in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco during the Summer of Love. They were like, I'm a guru. I take lots of acid, and I know things. And he supposedly may have borrowed some of his philosophy from the Process Church of the Final Judgment, and their members believed that Satan would become reconciled to Jesus, and they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. And I think this is interesting because once we get to Helter Skelter and, like, what his whole ideology was, if this is really kind of, like, his perception, like, Jesus and Satan coming together, like... It makes you, um, Charles Manson was a white supremacist, so I'm just going to say that. All right, so this kind of, like, era, 67, 68, he's, you know, in L.A. area trying to become an artist. He also, at the time, met a woman named Mary Brunner, who was a 23-year-old graduate of University of Wisconsin in Madison. And Brunner was working as a library assistant at the University of California, Berkeley, and Manson moved in with her. And according to a couple sources, she did not really want to bring other women into the mix. Like, she wanted to be with him. He was like, um, I'm going to bring some more women in here. So he started bringing women into her house to live with them. And before long, they were sharing Brunner's residence with over 18 other women. I just have to pause, like, I just have to have, like, a moment of silence for that. So the Manson family, as it starts growing, became known in the public as the Manson Girls because it was mostly comprised of young women in their late teens and early 20s. I think at one point, I might mention it later, there was one girl that was, like, 14 when she met him. So these women were white, middle-class flocking from all over the country to San Francisco and Los Angeles, inspired by the turn-on, tune-in, drop-out movement, the hippie movement that we've talked about before. So Manson used his female followers to lure other men to join the group, but not too many, not too many men. The group consisted of approximately 100 followers. They lived their unconventional lifestyle. If you look at videos and stuff, like pictures, whatever, it looks like it started off wholesome, which I think is kind of just the whole theme of from like 67 to 69 was it all seemed like wholesome and then it would just blow up in their faces but they're it's a commune like ideally living on a commune sounds lovely I would love to live on a commune um but I think we've talked about this before I'm gullible and I would probably wind up in like one of the bad communes but the idea the concept of a commune sounds lovely and that's what it started out as they were also um, habitually using hallucinogenic drugs such as LSD and I have looked up how to say this I think I'm saying it right ibogaine or ibogaine and that is like a plant that is uh, similar to the effects of LSD I think I actually read somewhere that they use it kind of like ketamine um, where you can do like infusion treatments to help with like addictions and mental illnesses and stuff but they were basically just constantly taking LSD and this other 
plant version of LSD. And I watched a documentary, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it, from my understanding, they were basically like constantly tripping, like whether it was, you know, like low grade, just having like rem remnants of it left in their system versus like full blown tripping. It seems like they were just keeping it rolling, if you know what I mean, like a really long bender. So one of the Manson family members, Paul Watkins, testified that Manson would encourage group LSD trips and then he would take like lower doses so he could, quote, keep his wits about him. And Watkins said that Charlie's trip was to program us all to submit. All right, this is from the Smithsonian. So Manson exercised total domination over the group. Members were reportedly forbidden from wearing their eyeglasses or carrying money, which I'm just thinking, like, I wear glasses, and I'm sure you guys are like, what? I never wear them anymore. I'm supposed to. But I know people, including my roommate Mandy, who, like, she has to wear her glasses or she cannot see. Like, I can see right now. I'm fine. Some people cannot see. And so I'm just imagining, like, being in a constant state of hallucination and tripping on LSD and not being able to see. That just sounds terrifying. But, yeah, so they couldn't wear their glasses, couldn't carry money. They just had, like, weird little rules, like – they couldn't really be responsible for things is what essentially I'm understanding from this. And in a book titled Member of the Family, I think this is a book, right? I think so, yeah. Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult and the Darkness that Ended the 60s, Manson follower Diane Lake, this was the girl who was just 14 when she met him. She talked about Long nights of lectures in which Manson instructed others at the ranch to take LSD and listen to him preach about the past, present, and future of humanity, which doesn't sound completely awful. Like, okay, that sounds like it could just be like, let's talk, but I think it wasn't just like casual, let's sit around, take LSD, and have a conversation about life. It was like more intense than that. So before the end of the summer, Manson and some of the women began traveling in an old school bus, um, very summer of love style, and they eventually settled down in Los Angeles areas like Topanga Canyon, Malibu, Venice, like they were just like kind of like hopping around the coast, doing their thing. At this point as well, Mary Brunner had given birth to her and Manson's, Manson's son, supposedly. So they're driving around the bus, trying to find a place to stay. Eventually, the Manson family was evicted from Wilson's property. I don't think it was because of Wilson being like, you need to get out. I think it was some, I think I read that it was Wilson's landlord that was like, why are there a hundred people in the house <laughs> that I'm renting to you? Like, no, they can't be here. So they had to find a new place. And that was when Man the Manson family um, eventually settled at Spawn Ranch, which was an old film and television set in the Western San Fernando Valley. Now, this part is gross. Female family members did chores around the ranch and occasionally had sex on Manson's orders with the nearly blind 80-year-old owner of the Spawn Ranch named George Spawn. The women also acted as guides for him. He was, like, blind or something. And in exchange, Spawn would allow Manson and his group to live at the ranch for free. And I, I want to retract my gross statement because I am pro-sex work and I know people have to do things um, in order to make their lives work and that's totally fine and valid but when manson is forcing the manson girls to have sex so that they can stay on this property it feels weird i don't know maybe some of them wanted to do it um but it doesn't seem like that's the case it seems like this was a blind 80 year old man and manson was like 
have sex with him so we can stay on this ranch. So um, just wanted to clarify that. So eventually the ranch did burn down during a Southern California wildfire in September of 1970, um, which is probably just for the best. All right, let's talk about Helter Skelter, which I think is what everybody thinks about when they think of Marilyn Manson. And Marilyn Manson, Charles Manson. Oh my gosh, I'm doing an episode on Marilyn Manson in like two weeks, so my brain, my wires are a little crossed. Um, Helter Skelter, Charles Manson. Let's get into it. So according to a group member, Susan Atkins, the members of the family became convinced that Manson was a manifestation of Jesus Christ himself and believed in his prophecies concerning an imminent apocalyptic race war. And this is from Wikipedia. So allegedly he taught his followers that they were the reincarnations of the original Christians. And that was what I was getting at earlier. It's like, why are you treating the women this way then? I don't know anything about Christianity, so maybe that's how they treated women in the Bible. But if that's the case, why are we listening to the Bible? Okay, so taken from the Beatles song, Helter Skelter, according to Manson, was referring to the pending race war, whatever, um, that would ultimately end the lives of thousands of people. And basically, the Manson family would have to go live in an underground cave and like wait until this race war ended so that they could emerge and rule what was left of the world, which is like so cowardice in my mind like if you're gonna be talking all this shit why aren't you fighting in this stupid war that you're like proposing like i said earlier he's a white supremacist and um supremacist and he told the manson family that and this is from wikipedia i'm just reading what it says this is not anything that i'm saying he said that black people in america would rise up and kill all white people except for manson and the family but that black people were not intelligent enough to survive on their own and they would need a white man to lead them and that would be Manson and he would be their master. And now this is from the Smithsonian. So he also told his followers that the Beatles' white album in general was just further evidence that his theories about the end of the world were correct, whatever that means. I would have hated to be the Beatles and this, like, be associated with this man. This is also from the Smithsonian. So while Manson initially foretold that the first crimes would be committed by black people against white people, he was like freaking out. It's the summer of 1969. His musical aspirations are not taking off the way that he had expected them to. His Hollywood connections had sort of dried up. And he was like, you know what? Things aren't working out the way I want them. This reminds me of the Aum Shinrikyo Japanese doomsday death cult. Because remember... Oh my God, there's about a million airplanes flying by today. Um, remember, he was like, oh my gosh, there's not a lot of people joining my cult. So like, I guess we got to go like kill all the people for not joining the cult. That was a really awful synopsis. But it's like they have this message, this prophecy that they're sharing with the world. And then when people don't subscribe to it they change it because it doesn't align anymore they're like well it's not going the way i want it to so now we have to be violent about it so basically he's like my music career is not taking off wham 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 i'm fucking charles manson and we're going to have to begin helter skelter ourselves so they start committing crimes in upscale neighborhoods in an attempt to this is from the smithsonian this is what it says demonstrate to black people how the violence should be carried out and then according to the Crime Museum, Manson would facilitate this war by killing white people, implicating the black community by, like, disposing victims' wallets in highly 
populated black residential areas. Literally, what the fuck? All right. So that is Helter Skelter. I'm going to talk to you about their crimes. This episode is weird because, I mean, I feel like a lot of the episodes we do have like the air of true crime um, entangled in it, but this one is like, I'm going to be talking to you guys about the murders, which is not something I normally do in super great detail, but Crime Museum had a lot of details on it, and so did Smithsonian and Wikipedia. So I'm just going to go ahead and trigger warning this next section. This is the Manson family crimes. And these are pretty much just the the violent crimes. They were committing plenty of other crimes. They were just awful, essentially. But we'll, let's talk about, I'm going to introduce you to the murder victims and the non-murder victims. And then I'm going to tell you about the murders. Um, and you can feel free to skip ahead if you don't want to hear about it. I do think it's important to say all of their names and talk about them. And if I miss somebody on this list, uh, I am that was not intentional. So um, sending love to all of these poor souls that were taken way too early and their families. So let's get into it. Gary Hinman, um, he was a friend of the Manson family and he was murdered. Sharon Tate was an actress and she was a pregnant murder victim, and she is probably the most infamous murder by the Manson family that most people would know about um, when they think of this case. Abigail Folger, so she was the heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune, and she was a murder victim. Um, Wojtek, I think I'm saying that right, Frakowski, he was a writer, he was dating Folger at the time, he was a murder victim. Jason Sebring, hairstylist, close friend of Sharon Tate, another murder murder victim. Stephen Parent was a friend of the Tate's housekeeper, and he was a murder victim. Lino LaBianca, Lino, <laughs> Lino LaBianca, founder of State Wholesale Grocery Company, was also a murder victim. And Rosemary LaBianca was co-founder of Boutique Carriage, wife of Lino LaBianca, murder victim. Okay, so here are some non-murder victims. Roman Polanski was Sharon Tate's husband, and he was a movie producer or director. I have it here in the notes. Um, he was not home at the time. He's a victim. His wife and baby were taken from him. Bernard Crow, he was shot and also was a fraud victim of the Manson family. And I'm pretty sure, like, he survived being shot, but they thought he actually died or something along those lines. And then Barbara Hoyt was a former family family member and prosecution witness. Family or blah, 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 Manson family attempted to murder her. And then Dennis Wilson, um, I guess just his reputation and association with the family makes him a victim. All right. I'm going to tell you about the Hinman murder, and then we'll talk about the Sharon Tate and all her friends being murdered, and then we'll talk about the LaBianca murders. Okay, so Charles Tex Watson was a member of the Manson family, and he seems kind of like the instigator for a lot of things, um, a lot of the issues that went wrong with the Manson family. So maybe that's where it went wrong when they just started inviting men into the group. But this guy, he was like a drug dealer before joining the family, which makes sense because um, they were doing drugs. So they would like to have someone that could have that connection for them. But basically... Tex is what I'm going to call him. Tex scammed Bernard Crow to obtain money for Manson. And Crow threatened Manson 
and the Manson family. Also, this whole section is crime museum. So I'm just reading to you what was from there, the details of the crimes. So soon after this threat from Crow on the Manson family, Manson shot Crow under the false pretense that Crow was, I don't know why this would matter, a part of the Black Panthers, a black leftist organization, which are um, a very interesting group to know about. I think, well, I guess, I don't know why I said, I don't know why he shot him, because he was a white supremacist. So I guess he was just like, oh, if you're coming for my family, I'm going to kill you. However, Crow did not die. The Manson family thought he did. And then they found out later that he didn't die. So they feared retaliation from Crow. And in order to escape and move into a new territory away from the Spawn Ranch, Manson needed money. And in the midst of Manson's escape plan, he was told that his friend Gary Hinman was coming into some money from an inheritance. So they assault Bernard Crow. They think he's a part of the Black Panthers. They're worried that... God, Zicky just slammed his body into the ground. They're worried that he's going to retaliate for being shot. And they're like, we got to get away from the ranch. He's going to find us there and kill all of us. We need some money. Our friend Gary Hinman has money. So that's where that kind of comes into play. So in an effort to retrieve the money from Hinman, Manson ordered Bobby Busolet, along with Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins, to go to Hinman's residence and persuade him to turn over the money. Hinman was like, what the fuck? No, I'm not doing that. And they held him for hostage they held him hostage for days. Manson came over with a sword and like slashed Hinman's left ear. And then finally Busolet murdered Hinman by stabbing him twice in the chest. And Hinman's blood was used to smear, quote, political piggy on the wall along with the Black Panther's paw to implicate the Black Panther Party. So this is the beginning of Helter Skelter. This is the beginning of committing crimes and framing black people. So this says that there was much speculation regarding the circumstances surrounding Hinman's murder, but Fuselet was arrested when he was found sleeping in Hinman's vehicle, wearing the bloody clothes that he had wore to kill Hinman. And it looks like the murder weapon was concealed in the trunk tire, so just very messy. So now let's talk about the infamous murder of Sharon Tate. And everyone else, I'm sorry, I don't know why I just said her. So remember earlier when I mentioned Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen, they were renting, or they were the previous renters of the house that Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski were living in together. So Manson, sorry. <laughs> so Manson had been friends with Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen. They wouldn't help him advance his music career. He knew where they lived. They moved out, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski moved in. You can see where this is going. So like I said, Charles had been putting in the work on his connection with Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen. He'd had Melcher over to the ranch and like performed for him to be like, look how good we are, like you should sign us, blah, blah, blah. And he pinned a great deal of hope on these connections with um, Terry and also with Dennis Wilson. And... Basically, when he figured out that they weren't going to be able to help him advance in his music career, this was when he decided to turn violent. Like I mentioned earlier, this is when he decided to, instead of wait for Helter Skelter to happen, he wanted to make Helter Skelter happen. So he's all got his panties in a twist about this. And this is from the Smithsonian. So according to the book Helter Skelter, the true story of the Manson murders by Vincent Bugliosi, who was the lead prosecutor of the case, and Kurt Gentry, Bugliosi and Kurt say... <laughs> I don't know why I alternate between saying, like, first and last names. 
Bugliosi and Gentry wrote that a witness for the prosecution described a day in 1969, it was like March, and Manson actually came to the house that uh, prior to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski living in, Terry Melcher and Candace were living there. And he came looking for them, right? But Tate was there instead. And I think I read that Tate was like having, Sharon Tate was having a photo shoot done and then she was going to be doing some traveling or something. But her photographer was there and they like both went outside and they were like, who is this man? And they're like, you know, these people used to live here before us. If you're looking for them, they don't live here anymore. Um, so essentially the point that I'm trying to make is that Manson went there. He knew that Melcher and Bergen no longer lived there. Or, like, I don't know, maybe he didn't know that. Maybe he just thought that Sharon was there as, like, a visitor, like, misunderstood. I'm not completely sure. We know that anything from the 60s, like, the story isn't going to be exactly perfect because everyone was tripping balls. But basically, it seems like he knew that Sharon Tate was living there and Terry and Candace were no longer living there. So my thing about this is just like, if you are going to be a murderer, if you're going to murder people and be an awful piece of shit human, um, don't be negligent in the research phase. Like that's not something that you just like fuck around and like make a little oopsie. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to kill the wrong person or maybe you do. I don't know. So according to Gentry, Gentry and Bugliosi, Manson directed Tex, Susan, a woman named Linda Kasabian and Patricia Krenwinkel, these people have crazy names, to enter the Tate residence and to, quote, destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can. Now, remember how I said they're, like, constantly on acid and stuff? So these people are, like, just munching down the tabs. And I'm a firm believer that, like, LSD does not make you a violent person at all. Um, like, you can take it and not be violent and, like, not hurt yourself. But I think if you're in an, an environment where it's being encouraged and, like, you're tripping so hard, like, you can be persuaded more easily to go and do those things probably. But it's not the LSD that necessarily makes you that way. It's, like, your environment, your set, and your setting. So on the night of August 8th, 1969, this is months later, after Manson had supposedly shown up in March to see who was living at that residence, the Manson family members drove to Tate and Polanski's home, and Polanski was out of town working on a film at the time. Upon their arrival, the group stumbled across Stephen Parent, who I mentioned earlier. He was the teenage friend of, like, the house's caretaker, and he was leaving the house as they arrived. And Watson, or Tex, stopped Parent, swung a knife at him, and then shot him four times in the chest and abdomen. Inside the home was Sharon Tate, and she was eight months pregnant at the time. Um, she was also, like, a really big up-and-coming star in Hollywood at the time as well. So um, she had just appeared in 1967's Valley of the Dolls, and everyone – she's fucking beautiful. Like, if you look her up, you're going to be like, oh, my God, of course she was an up-and-coming Hollywood star at the time. So she was at home eight fucking months pregnant, relaxing with her friends, J.C. Bring, the hairstylist – Abigail Folger, the coffee heiress, and Folger's boyfriend, Wojtek Frakowski. None of them had any tangible connection to Manson or the family, other than just having been in the house that had previously been occupied by Terry Melcher. Okay, trigger warning. Watson entered the residence, and this I'm just going to read this to you guys. So this is from Crime Museum. So Watson entered the residence by cutting the screen of a window 
and opened the front door for Atkins and Krenwinkel. Kasabian was at the end of the driveway to, quote, keep watch. Watson and the group entered the residence and found Tate, Folger, Frakowski, and Sebring. Tate and Sebring were then tied together by their necks and Folger was taken into a nearby bedroom. Sebring was shot and stabbed seven times. Frakowski was bound by a towel but managed to free himself, and after doing so, he became involved in a physical altercation with Atkins, resulting in her stabbing him in the legs. Frakowski continued to flee, but Watson struck him with a gun multiple times over the head, shot and stabbed him multiple times. The gun grip broke off as a result of Watson striking Frakowski over the head. And it keeps going, so just bear with me. Folger fled the room and she was ta- that she was taken to, and she was then chased by Krenwinkel. Folger was stabbed by Krenwinkel and eventually stabbed by Watson as well. And it looks like Folger was stabbed a total of 28 times by both Krenwinkel and Watson. Meanwhile, Frakowski was struggling across the lawn when Watson came to stab him again. Frakowski was stabbed a total of 51 times. Tate, having witnessing these horrible crimes, pleaded with Atkins for mercy but was rejected. She was then stabbed a total of 16 times and her unborn child did not survive the incident. Whew, I'm getting worked up over here. Sorry, guys, I'm still going on this. Into the late hours of that night, Tate's neighbors did claim to have heard suspected gunshots but did not alert the authorities. There were also reports of a man's screams coming from the Tate residence, and later in the night, a private security guard hired by property owners also heard gunshots coming from the Tate residence and proceeded to notify the LAPD. Now, if you know anything about true crime, you know the LAPD sucks big balls and always fucks up and botches their cases, so, it, you know, whatever. The following morning at 8 a.m., the housekeeper, Winifred Chapman, came into the residence and discovered the brutally murdered bodies. Okay, so that was from Crime Museum. That was the Tate murders. Let's talk about the LaBianca murders. So the very next night after the Tate murders, the same group of family members plus another member, Leslie Van Houten, and Charles Manson himself set out to commit more crimes. Um, and that is, so this next section is a combination of the crime museum and the Smithsonian. So they basically drove around all night. They were like, where should we go to kill people? And they wound up um, looking for more murder victims in an, a neighborhood of a home where they had previously attended a party like a year earlier. This was the Los Feliz area of LA. And I would like to do a case on the Los Feliz murder house, which is pretty much just a straight up true crime case. Um, but I'm going to afford myself that luxury because I went and saw it when I was in LA. And I just feel like I want to talk about my experience along with like the history of that house. Um, but Los Feliz, man, just LA in general, like there's so much um, evil energy. Lots of bad vibes in LA, but also so many great vibes, but like murder, man, like they just be murdering each other out there and they do not give a fuck. Um, okay, so they drove to the house of Leno LaBianca and his wife Rosemary in Los Feliz of LA. Um, they were totally unknown to the Manson family, like they had no connection. They just were chosen at random after driving around. So what the fuck? Let's get into what happened at the crime scene. So trigger warning, and then I'm going to read this section from Crime Museum. There are several differing accounts of, like, what actually happened um, from, like, all of the different Manson members who were there. They all kind of say different things, so the exact occurrence that went down at the murders is not certain. 
Um, but Manson claims that he approached the home alone and returned later to bring Watson, Tex, a.k.a., along. And when Manson and Watson were in the residence, they tied up the LaBianca couple with a lamp cord and pillowcases covering their heads. Manson then reassured the couple that they would not be hurt and they were just being robbed. All the cash was collected and the bounded Rosemary was returned to her room. Soon after, Van Houten and Krenwinkel entered the premises with the instructions from Manson to kill the couple. Manson left their residence and instructed Van Houten and Krenwinkel to follow whatever Tex told them to do. So Tex began stabbing Leno multiple times when Leno cried out to stop stabbing him. And then afterwards in the bedroom, Rosemary began to swing the lamp still attached to the cord around her neck. So a fucking badass. Van Houten and Krenwinkel yelled for Watson's aid and stabbed Rosemary multiple times. Watson gave the knife to Van Houten and she continued to stab Rosemary. Rosemary was stabbed a total of 41 times by the three of them. Watson returned to the living room and continued to stab and kill Leno. They carved the word war into Leno's stomach, stabbed Leno multiple times, left a carving fork sticking out from his stomach and a knife in his throat. Leno was stabbed a total of 26 times. And then on the walls of the living room, they wrote death to pigs and rise in Leno's blood. And on the refrigerator door, somebody wrote helter skelter, but like they misspelled it. They misspelled it. Wow. They misspelled it. <laughs> I didn't even write that. Okay. Um, finally, this is the last little bullet point. So Rosemary's son from a prior marriage, his name is Frank Struthers. He came home from a trip and noticed that their blinds were drawn, their shades were drawn at their house. And he was like, that's weird. Um, and Leno's speedboat was still parked in the driveway. So I guess they were like planning to go use that. And so he was like, why are they home? So he called his sister and they both went with her boyfriend, Joe, and they entered the home and they found the bodies and the LAPD was alerted. Now, when I was watching the 60 Minutes episode, the Australia 60 Minutes, the detective who was like brought to the scene said that this was like the most the the Manson family and the LaBianca murders were like the most gruesome murders he's ever seen. And so he was very adamant about none of these um, people getting any sort of parole time or like that was his opinion. If you look up pictures and videos, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. So just warning you if you are going to go look at that, it's there. It's not like the most great quality, which I always every time I learn about a case, I'm like, oh, I want to go see what's going on there. And I'm always, like, a little bummed out because I just, for some reason, am expecting, like, super HD photos of these, like, awful crime scenes. And I don't know why I want to see that. But they're still pretty bad. Um, just putting that out there for you guys. All right. Let's talk about the aftermath, what came of the cult, and Manson. So the Hinman murder was under the jurisdiction of the L.A. Sheriff's Department, the LASD. Buselet was arrested for that. The LaBianca murder was under the LAPD jurisdiction, but a formal announcement made by the LAD, LAPD incorrectly, con they, they were like, the Tate murders and the LaBianca murders are not the same. They're not connected, which is not true. Um, just kind of like on brand for LAPD. Initially in the Tate murder investigation, the home taker was actually arrested um, because he was found at the scene, but he was released after a polygraph test, which like, Polygraph test, really? So although the LASD made contact with the LAPD regarding the similarities between the Tate and the Hinman murders, the LAPD was insistent that the Tate murder was like the result of a drug transaction gone bad. Um, 
Thankfully, though, the Manson family was still committing crimes, not necessarily, like, violent or related to these things, but, like, they were still out there just being dumbasses, committing crimes, and they were getting, like, arrested slowly but surely. There was one situation where the Manson family was in Death Valley, which I'm going there um, in the spring, and Death Valley is crazy, y'all. Like, it's fucking scary. I'm getting hella notifications right now. I'm sorry. Um... Yeah, Death Valley is, like, incredibly spiritual and intense, and, like, of course these fucking dumbasses were there, like, digging away. But they, they're they in Death Valley, right? They're digging into the ground for their bottomless, bottomless pit. And now, remember I said, Helter Skelter, like, they have to go underground in a cave and then come out when it's over. So that's what they were doing. They were building their bottomless pit or searching for it or whatever. That's what they were doing. And in the process, they somehow burned machinery that belonged to the Death Valley National Monument. So, of course, like, the police came. There was, like, a raid by police authorities. And in this process, the raiders found stolen dune buggies and other vehicles, and they arrested a total of two dozen people, including Manson. He had been hiding. um, A highway patrol officer found him hiding in a cabinet under, like, a bathroom sink or something weird like that. Um... The officers at the time did not realize, though, that, like, those people were the ones that were responsible for the murders in L.A., for the Tate murders and the LaBianca murders. They were just arresting them for defiling a national monument and digging in fucking Death Valley. Like, you can't do that. So this part is, like, a side note. One of my clients at the club, we were talking about traveling and stuff, and I was talking about Death Valley, and he had pictures of the vehicles that they had stolen, like, the dune buggies and stuff. Because when they got arrested, they, like, just abandoned those vehicles. Like, there's a video, the vehicle specifically that Manson had left, and then when he went to, like, go hide away, and it's just there. Like, they never moved those vehicles because, like, no one ever came to claim them or anything, and they're just out there in the middle of Death Valley, and you can go see them. And, like, I don't know if that, like, I don't know. I think it's cool. It's not necessarily cool. Like, it's kind of fucked up, but I think it's cool, and I'm probably going to go see them, and I just wanted to share that with you guys. All right. So Busillet's girlfriend, Kitty Lutzinger, was arrested with the Manson family at their ranches, and the LaBianca detectives realize, like, oh, Busillet and this girl Kitty are together. They start speaking to her, and they're like, what kind of information can we get out of her? Eventually, she shares details that put the murder investigations at the top of their minds. They're like, oh, you guys are responsible for these other murders as well. And I guess, she, I don't know, like, what was going on. She just ended up telling people, she was talking about it in jail, too, and to the detectives, but she ended up implicating the Manson family with the LaBianca murders and the Tate murders. All right, this is from the Smithsonian. So after the family members behind the murders were apprehended, Manson was put on trial for murder with them. So even though he didn't do any of the actual murdering, Um, prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote that book I told you about, argued that the family did everything that Manson ordered them to do, including murder. So he was like the conspirator or whatever. So this is, this next little bit is from the Crime Museum. On June 15th, 1970, the Tate-LaBianca trial against Manson, Watson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel began for seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Then Van Houten, who just did the the LaBianca murders, was charged with two counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. And Kasabian, Kasabian, I don't know what I've been saying this whole time. In exchange for immunity, she testified for the prosecution to explain the events that occurred during each vicious crime. Um, What else? 
So Atkins had originally agreed to testify, but she retracted her statement. And in the beginning of the trial, Manson was going to be his own attorney, and he was permitted to do that. And then after several violations of conduct, this was withdrawn. They were like, no, you can't. You don't have this right anymore. And supposedly this was when he drew the infamous swastika between his um, eyebrows. So if you didn't know that, he has one, like, essentially, like, on his third eye, he drew a swastika. So... I told you guys he's a white supremacist. He's a white supremacist. <laughs> I'm getting worked up. Okay. This is still from Crime Museum. So Manson's influence on the prosecution's witnesses was becoming very evident during the trial. Um, Barbara Hoyt, who I actually mentioned earlier, they attempted to murder. I don't really know if this is an attempted murder. Maybe it was. But supposedly she was lured by a Manson family member to Hawaii and was given, I'm putting air quotes around this if you're not watching, lethal doses of LSD which, like, isn't really a thing. Um, they say, like, you can't, like, overdose on LSD. Um, it's just you might have taken so much and then you maybe carry out an action that might kill you. Like, people who think they can fly and, like, jump off buildings or, like, just get into an accident and they die. It's not the LSD that's killing you, even though you might feel like you're dying because you're tripping so hard. It's, like, you physically do something with your body that kills you. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. But... I guess I can't even imagine what, like, if someone's saying it was a lethal dose of LSD, I don't even want to think about that. Luckily, Barbara Hoyt was able to get to a hospital before any fatal events could occur, so that's what I was getting at. Any accidents could occur. And then there was another witness, Paul Watkins, that was the one I mentioned at the beginning, who had testified. Um, he was severely burned in a suspicious fire in his van. Another situation, Van Houten's attorney, Ronald Hughes, failed to appear in court when he refused to allow his client to testify. He stated that he refused to, quote, push a client out the window. His body was discovered after the trial ended, and his death was rumored to be ordered by the Manson family. The jury took a week to deliberate, but they came to the verdict of guilty for all charges of murder and conspiracy for all defendants. Good. Um, they were given the death penalty, but in 1972, all death penalties were commuted to life in prison because California Supreme Court made that decision. All right, so some of the family did remain loyal to Manson after the, um, after the sentencing. So in 1975, one of Manson's earliest followers, Lynette Squeaky Fromm, attempted to assassinate President Gerald Ford. Her gun jammed, and she was quickly captured by the Secret Service, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. But before I get there, the reason they call her squeaky is so gross. Um, I read, I think it was on Wikipedia, supposedly she got the nickname squeaky because when she would have sex with that 80-year-old man on Spawn Ranch that they were, like, renting the ranch from, she would make, like, a squeaking sound. And so they called her squeaky. But, okay, so this attempt to assassinate... President Ford, took place in Sacramento. Um, her and another follower of Manson, Sandra Good, had moved there so they could be closer to Manson while he was in Folsom, Folsom State Prison. Um, they shared an apartment together, and later evidence was found that led to her conviction. Obviously, she carried out the action and tried to do it too, but there was evidence showing that she had conspired to send threatening communications through the mail service and for transmitting death threats by way of interstate commerce. She was sentenced to 15 years to life, becoming the first person sentenced under U.S. Code Title 18, Chapter 84, um, which was, I guess, a 1965 law that was passed, which or whatever sentencing decision. 
which made it a federal crime to attempt to assassinate the president of the U.S., which is interesting to me that it wasn't made earlier. Okay, so in 87, she was serving her life sentence for the assassination attempt, and she escaped briefly from federal prison camp Alderson in West Virginia. So she was back in West Virginia. I feel like this was happening a lot back in the 60s and 70s. People were, and the 80s, I guess, people were escaping from jail. Um, supposedly she was trying to get to Manson because she heard that he had testicular cancer and she wanted to like be with him, I guess, before he died. She was apprehended and she actually was released on parole, um, on August 14th, 2009, which is surprising to me. Other Manson family supporters attempted to help him as well. They would like gather weapons to try and break him out of jail. And once like websites became a thing, they made websites to kind of like petition to get him out. And then this is kind of like a, I guess, like a pop culture influence that he had. And this is from Wikipedia. So Manson fanatic James Mason claimed to be acting on a suggestion from Charles Manson based on his interpretation of something that Manson had said in a televised interview. And Mason founded the Universal Order, a neo-Nazi group that has influenced other movements such as the terrorist group that, I don't know how to say this, the Adam Waffen Division. Bugliosi quoted a BBC employee's assertion that a, quote, neo-Manson cult existed in Europe represented by approximately 70 rock bands playing songs by Manson and, quote, songs in support of him. All right, let's talk about his final days and then we'll wrap it up. So over time, Manson was one of California's longest standing prison inmates. And the reason he was never released was because he had a history of controlling behavior, mental health issues, including schizophrenia and paranoid delusional disorder. Um, he also had 108 rules violation reports. He did not indicate any remorse. If you've ever seen any interviews or things of him talking about it, he's not. he does not give a fuck. Um, he thinks what he did was fine. Basically, he just doesn't get it. Like they're, they're like, he doesn't understand like the reality of what he's done. Um, and yeah, he just, they, they weren't gonna let him out. Um, this is from crime museum. So on January 1st, 2017, Manson was taken to the hospital and was found to be suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding. He was very ill, but they returned him back to the prison. And then on November, blah, 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 on November 15th, that's today. That's today on November 15th. Of 2017, he was taken back to the hospital, and just four days later, while still in the hospital, he died from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer. So I guess it wasn't testicular cancer, or maybe it was both. He was 83 years old when he died. Since then, the Tate residence has been demolished, and a new mansion was built on the property. The home does remain vacant, I think, as of, like, 2020. I don't know if that's still the case. And the LaBianca house is a private re residence that was offered for sale in 2019. Wow. Okay. So that was the Manson family. I don't think there's anything else I wanted to add. I told you about the Death Valley situation. I told you about the Zach Bagans Museum. Um, I was talking to my friend Jason about this and he was like, I just really feel like it started off as something good. And I think maybe, but I think knowing Manson's like history and his early childhood and stuff. I don't really know if he, if he ever had good intentions. I think maybe some of his followers probably had good intentions, but I don't know necessarily that Manson ever did. Um, yeah, I can't really sit here and try to like understand this like white supremacist. So I'm going to leave it at that. 
but that was a big episode I've been waiting to do. I hope you guys liked it. Um, y'all know what to do. Follow Profskep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Check out the link in my bio. That's link, L-I-N-K, tree, T-R dot E-E forward slash Profskep Podcast, where you can find our website, profskeppodcast.com, our merch, profskeppodcast.bigcartel.com, our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And everything else your little heart desires, get on there, subscribe to the Patreon, um, subscribe to the YouTube, share, 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 leave me ratings, comments, and I think that's it. I love you guys so much. Stay sus skeptics. I will see you next week.